Welcome to the Calvary Limerick Podcast, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Cowper. We're a church that seeks to live together before the face of God. We hope today's message blesses you. So the blame game is a game we all often love to play, especially blaming someone else, probably exclusively blaming someone else. So, um... I was watching a bit of a movie, didn't watch it all though, called The Tale of Despero. I don't know if any of the kids have seen it. It's about a mouse. But in the story, um, the king, who's a human, he throws a big banquet and they bring out some soup. This chef, this top chef has prepared soup and a mouse falls from the ceiling into the soup and the queen has a heart attack and face plants into the soup and dies. And so, the king, yeah, kids' movies are mad. <laughs> so the king, he has, um, makes a law which outlaws soup because of what happened to his wife. Outlaws the making of soup, the eating of soup, the selling of soup, or the like, writing down of recipes of soup. And then he brings out a second law that outlaws mouse, mice and rats. <laughs> because he wants to blame someone. He wants to find somebody to blame for what happened. So, as I think as we read James today, I think God wants to teach us something about blame and owning our own temptations and our own mistakes. So we're gonna read chapter one, verses 13 to 18. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So I think it's interesting that um, James links trials and temptations in this first section of his epistle. Like we've broken it up, and I've talked about the trials piece before. Um, we've looked at them individually, mostly for the sake of time. But James has them together, and it's important to remember that. So I was thinking, because <clears throat> James is a little bit less clear about his links than um, like Paul is. So for Paul, you might have one sentence that goes on for six or seven verses in our Bible. And then the next verse says, therefore. So you know exactly kind of what Paul is thinking and how he's gotten to each thought, whereas James seems to have like put down the pen and come back a bit. So I was thinking about the link between trials and temptations and then was struck by how linked they are in my own life. Because when we're thinking about trials, we're thinking about the difficulty difficulties that come into our lives and then what God's goal is in allowing them to happen. And so our reactions to our trials is, is what it's about, becoming better and not bitter, we were saying last time. But we're often tempted not to react the way God wants us to react, not to learn the things that God wants us to learn. The temptation is to moan or to complain, to say, why me? And I think that's why James has these two things together because often a trial leads to a temptation. And that's not the only time we feel tempted, but there's definitely a link there between the two of them. 
And so his thought flows naturally from trials to temptations. Warren Wearsby said, when our circumstances are difficult, we may find ourselves complaining against God, questioning his love and resisting his will. At this point, Satan provides us with an opportunity to escape the difficulty. This opportunity is a temptation. But we can't blame God. And that's what the first verse that we looked at says. Blaming God for our temptations is like blaming somebody's death on a bowl of soup. We just can't do it. It makes no sense. And God, he cannot be tempted to do evil. And he does not tempt us to do evil. Because that would be totally against his nature. And he can't change. He is what he is. He is what he says he is. And he will always be what he is. He doesn't ever act in a way that's contrary to who he is. His own nature, 2 Timothy verse two, chapter 2, verse 13 says that God cannot deny himself. He can't do evil, nor does he desire any evil actions for us to do us, for us to do evil. So he will never tempt us to do evil. The ESV study Bible commented on this verse said, God brings trials in order to strengthen the Christian's faith. He never tempts, however, because he never desires his people to sin. And note in verse 14 of James says, he says, temptation is when we are enticed by our own desires. It comes from inside us and there's an enticer as well. But mostly it's an internal process, not something that God does, not something outside us, but our sinful desires rearing their ugly heads. So it's not God that tempts us, it's our own desires. And there's also a great tempter. He's the one that entices us, that's Satan. So we're gonna watch a clip um, so this is from another kids movie. <laughs> How did you do that? I can make anything you like. Can you make me taller? <laughs> anything you'd like to eat. Turkish delight? I would very much like to meet the rest of your family. Why? They're nothing special. Oh, I'm sure they're not nearly as delightful as you are. But you see, Edmund, I have no children of my own. And you are exactly the sort of boy who I could see one day becoming Prince of Narnia. Maybe even king. Really? Of course, you'd have to bring a family. Oh, uh, do you mean Peter would be king too? No, no, no. But a king needs servants. I, I guess I could bring. So, if you don't know. That is from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um,
So Turkish delight is not a bad thing. We even have some for you to have. <laughs> Turkish delight is not a temptation in itself. And the desire to eat Turkish delight, if it delights you, is perfectly normal and healthy. However, when someone or you yourself plays on your desire to eat Turkish delight, so when having Turkish delight is more important to you than your family or friends or your God, specifically, that is not a good use of Turkish delight. So if that's you, don't eat the Turkish delight. <laughs> the white witch in the clip represents Satan. And see how she used Turkish delight to get Edmund to do exactly what she wanted him to do. He had two desires that she played on, two desires that weren't wrong in themselves, but she twisted them in him so that they were. He didn't want to spend his life in his brother's shadow. And you see, you hear him mention, but will Peter be king too? He wanted to be his own person and he wanted Turkish delight. And she used those things to set him and Peter against one another and to make him desire the things she could offer him over his own family. And then if you notice my favorite bit, when she hands the drink back to the little guy and he throws it at a tree and it turns back into snow, that's exactly what temptation is. It looks nice, it looks appealing and appetizing, but really it's just snow, it's nothing. And even, then, even worse than that, it's death. We see God doesn't just tell us not to blame him for temptation, he also gives us help to overcome temptation to mature in our relationship with Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 said, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But when the temptation comes, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here in James, he gives us three such ways out, ways of escaping or ways of enduring it. First is God's judgment, and you can see that in 13 to 16, and then God's goodness in verse 17, and then God's divine nature within us in verse 18. So first, God's judgment. Sin and evil are never God's desire for his people. That's how we know that God doesn't tempt us, because if he did, he would, it would imply he wanted us to sin, and he never wants that. Instead, he reminds us in the passage that the end result of sin is judgment. That's what James means when he says, Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death, in verse 15. Of course, for the Christian, sin no longer means death because the price of that has been paid by Christ. When we sin as Christians, we're not putting ourselves back under the condemnation of God as if we'd never been saved or as if we need to be saved again. However, there's still a form of judgment for our actions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about the sort of judgment that we face as Christians. It's a totally different judgment to the one non-believers will face, which is called the great, great white throne judgment most of the time, and that's where sin is punished. But if we believe in Christ, if he's our savior, if he's your Lord, if Christ has been punished for you, we don't go to that judgment, but we'll sit before what's often called the Bema seat, and that's about rewards. And so judgment for us is about what way God is going to reward us. So. Death to us can be death to some of our rewards that God has planned to give us for what we do for him on this earth. And that should be a motivator when we're tempted, knowing that in giving in to wrong and evil and sin would displease God, first of all, and then that it would cause a loss of the reward of what he has for us. 
Second is God's goodness. In verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's the ESV's translation of it. We've mentioned that our desires have roots in good things, things that God has created the desire in us for, but temptation warps those desires. It's a trick of the enemy in those times in temptation. And the enemy can be the world, can be Satan, but it could also be our own flesh, our own sinful nature. It tricks us and we're being told that God is holding out on us, that he's not giving us the good things. The satisfaction of our desires isn't com- coming to us and that, that it's God's fault, but that's not true. God is good and he desires good things for his children and he gives good things to his children. The goodness of God needs to be a foundational truth of our lives. And it's very important because if you're not convinced of God's goodness, when these things happen, you will be tempted and you will look at God as if he is not good when you have difficult circumstances. We'll be more likely to believe the lies that God is holding out on you and holding good things from you. One pastor noted, the goodness of God is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. Since God is good, we do not need any other person, including Satan, to meet our needs. And this is important, I think, in your Christian life. And another thing that's important is how you relate to God. Are you obedient to the word of God and the precepts of God because you fear God? You fear his punishment? You fear what he might do to you or allow to happen to you were you to give in to temptation and sin? I imagine a lot of people, especially in Irish culture, that's how we relate to God because people have been trained to have like a guilt and a shame outlook um, by supposedly Christian institutions in this country. But that's not God, how God wants us to relate to him. When he talks about fear, it's talking about awe. But he is good and he gives us good gifts. He blesses us. He died for us. He saved us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We are heaven bound. Every good thing we have, we have because he has given it to us. And that is the foundation that God wants us to relate to him from. Not from fear of what he might do to us if we don't do what he says, but from love because of what he has already done for us. And so James's third help in times of temptation is God's divine nature in us. It's in verse 18. It says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. When James says that God brought us forth by the word of truth, he's speaking of our salvation, not our natural birth. In this context, us means believers. A word of truth would be the gospel and brought forth, which is often used to mean like from the womb, refers to our spiritual birth as Christians. So we are fruits of the new creation. I'm not sure if we're first fruits because it's been 2,000 years, but maybe we still are. Um, I don't know if that matters. We're definitely fruits of the new creation. This new creation is new humanity, humanity indwelt by the Spirit of God himself. And that's the third barrier for us when temptation comes. Jesus prayed that we may be one with God as God is one and that we may be united to him. We will never be gods. We will never be like God in his nature. But as Christians, we have something of God. We have a union with him. We have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through us. So we're the highest of creation. I don't get puffed up 
and big-headed because of that, because we've got nothing to do with it. We can claim that because God made us that way by design, and he makes us that way by salvation and by sanctification, his work in us. It's a work of grace, not something our own hands do. We're the highest of creation because of him, and one day we will judge the angels. And that means that giving into temptation is below us. It's beneath our dignity to accept Satan's bait or to desire sinful things, one writer put it. If you've watched all of The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, then you'll know what happens in the end. Edmund doesn't overcome temptation, but Aslan pays the price for him. And then Edmund, as well as his brother Peter and sister Susan and Lucy, become the rulers of Narnia. And all of us have given into temptation too, but our Aslan, or greater than Aslan, Jesus, died for us, so that we can have his power within us to overcome our temptation too. And look at what, what's promised when we do overcome trials and temptations in our lives. We just go back to verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. There is a crown waiting for the one who stands firm in trials and temptations. That's the reward we were talking about earlier. And then finally, note again, just like we were talking about trials, what God is calling to us here is not a tedious task. It isn't a long list of do's and don'ts that were given by God. Instead, we're told to remember three things. God is judge, God is good, and God is in us. And recalling these three things are the best ways to overcome temptations in our lives. The burden of Jesus is light, and his yoke is easy. And the grace of God achieved and made accessible to us by the life of Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection is again central here. Let's just pray. God, we just thank you for who you are, for your goodness that you have shown to us in what you have done in our lives, what you've done through the life of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that um, when temptation comes, when we're in trials, Lord, that we will remember that you are judge. We remember that you are good. And we remember that you are in us. Lord, that you would call these things to our minds so that we would be able to stand firm, that we'd be able to see the way out of temptation, Lord, that you have promised to put there. And Lord, that we, will, we, will, sorry, we may one day um, receive that reward that you have for us, Lord. Because we, that's what we want, Lord. We want your goodness. We want what you have for us. We don't want to be following our own ways and doing our own thing, Lord. And Lord, we just pray that even in the difficult times that that would be true that we would want to follow your ways and go your way and receive the things you have for us and not anything more or anything less. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.